Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. If I do not know any of you, a really warm welcome here in the room and on, online via cameras and clever technology like that. What we're going to do today, I think we're on week eight of our Judges series. And we're looking at Judges chapter 13. Um, here we get introduced to Samson. We're seeing the build-up to his story and the very early days of his life. He's the last judge in the book of Judges, and we're going to hear more about the juicy bits of his life next week. But this is about how God brings about this mighty man of God and why he needs to do so. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read through Judges 13, and then we'll pick it apart and take away some lessons that we think will be useful. So Judges chapter 13 should be on the screen, so you can follow along. Uh, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have uh, not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who worked wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. 
And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manahedan between Zorah and Eshtael. So there we go. Hopefully that was clear and uh, no more needs to be said from me. I joke. We, uh, we're going to take it apart a little bit because we haven't actually heard much about Samson so far. We've got a couple of short verses at the end that talks about once he's arrived. But up to that point, God is obviously doing something to bring about this guy who is hopefully going to save Israel. And we're going to start with, what did the Israelites do again? Anyone who's been around for a few weeks, what did the Israelites do? They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this is from a pantomime. Pantomimes aren't evil, just to clarify. I like pictures. I think they're really helpful in terms of helping us latch on to some of the, the bits that we get from God's Word. The reason I've got a, a pantomime dame on the screen is because this is the seventh time that we have heard the Israelites have done evil in the eyes of the Lord in the book of Judges. The seventh time. It's like a running joke in a pantomime. He's behind you. Oh, no, he isn't. Oh, yes, he is. That sort of thing. It's happening again and again. Except in this case, it's not comical. It's sad that the Israelites have again done what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the result of that is that they are under the hand of an enemy for the longest period of time yet, for 40 years, which is a long old chunk of time. What I think is interesting here is that it says they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but later on in Judges, in chapter 21, we read that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That suggests that what they were doing, they might have perceived as acceptable. They might have seen their actions as fine and okay. It might not have been uh, anything that was obviously or culturally bad. It might not have uh, violated their own conscience or personal standards. But because they were viewing their, their lives through their own eyes rather than through the eyes of the Lord, they were missing out on what he had for them. They were missing what was ultimately right or wrong. We hear phrases like, you do you, or live your best life. Only you can decide what is right and wrong for you. But actually, if you're a follower of Jesus, instantly there is a calling to live a certain way. There is a calling for all of us as Christians to, to uh, act out the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, that's what that means, to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor. Some of these things that are universal callings on our lives. In addition to that, there might be specific callings, things you do with your, your time, your money, your work, things that God has called you to, places, people groups, all those sorts of things. And if you don't know God yet, he's still God. What he says is right and wrong is so. What he says as, uh, is just and unjust, they are true and unchanging. So the Israelites might have had lots of reasons, explanations, and justifications for how they were living, but it wasn't God's eyes that they were doing things through. They were doing things through the, the lens of their own eyes and were missing, missing the point. And the result was that long period of time out of God's blessing, under the hand of an enemy nation. The other thing is our own eyes aren't actually very good at spotting sin or defining what is wrong. We've all got blind spots, which is one of the reasons it's so important to be part of a community, a family where people encourage you, challenge you, and observe any blind spots that you may have. If you think of someone in your own biological family or friendship group, if you see someone who's doing something that is damaging them and they're oblivious to it, you point it out. You lovingly want the best for them. You don't want them to be tripping over again and again, pantomime dame style, same jokes at their own expense. And it's easy to see, especially if we look back at history, examples of when nations or people groups have collectively done something wrong. 
So just because something is politically or culturally popular doesn't mean that it's right. We can think of loads of examples of horrific acts that have been carried out by the majority in history. So just because something doesn't violate your own personal conscience, just because something is socially or culturally acceptable, does not mean it is right in God's eyes, necessarily. Um, what I want you to think about from this, we haven't got to Samson and his parents yet, but one of the questions that you consider throughout the week uh, in life groups is what do you allow to sidetrack you from how God has called you to live? Is it something that is good or looks okay culturally, but has become an idol for you? It's not necessarily anything particularly terrible, but you have allowed it to dominate your life and distract you from what God has ultimately called you to do. Maybe there are small, acceptable sins. Those aren't things, but they're things that we, uh, it's easier to turn a blind eye to. Things like worry and pride, gluttony, materialism. So that's one question I want you to be thinking through throughout the week. Right, that's the context. We haven't got to Samson and his parents. We're getting there next. But the context is Israel have fallen again. They've messed up again. It's the seventh time. They keep doing it. And yet God is faithful and he's going to do something about this. So who are Samson's parents? This is an actual photo. Actual photo of them. They are Mr. and Mrs. Average. The underwhelming, ordinary couple. It doesn't seem that they are anybody particularly special based on the explanation we have. And that's a bit of a theme, both in Judges and throughout Scripture, that God uses very ordinary people for incredibly extraordinary things. It shows his power at work through the lives of people who, like me and maybe you, are probably fairly ordinary in many regards. We read in Romans 4.17, God gives life to the dead and makes things that are not as though they were. That's the example we're seeing here, that he's going to bring about something incredible, a mighty strong warrior of God from a very ordinary couple, unimpressive in their own strength. But what's particularly important is that they are good listeners. They've got big ears, they hear what God says, and they believe what they hear. And we'll see shortly that they're going to do something about it. The other part I think is interesting is that this is one of a few examples where God gives people who are childless a child. He blesses them with children. Again, this is a bit of a theme where God does it several times, and I want to, to zoom in on it a little bit because, again, culturally, it's something where it's easy to forget in the, in the nation we live in, in the environment we live in. Children aren't always spoken about as a blessing. So they're sometimes talked about as an inconvenience, a financial burden, a drain on your time and energy and resources. But that's not what God thinks. God blesses people with children. We see it again and again that it is one of the ways that God blesses his people throughout Scripture. And the same holds true now, that children are a blessing. It's, it's almost an expected part of life as a Christian, that whether they are biological children or spiritual children, there is an element of everyone becoming mothers and fathers. So really important, I think, that God has again chosen to use people who could not have children themselves. Other examples, we've got Sarah, Hannah, Elizabeth. They were people who couldn't have kids, and God blessed them with a child that he would then use to bring about his aims. What I think is odd and I might have done this differently, but it's God. It's the angel of the Lord. Um, so he, his ways are wise and just and all that. He approaches uh, Manoah's wife and says, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. I think I, I'm, I'm not God, but I would choose to do it a bit more tactfully because I, I, didn't, I don't know all this stuff. But that must have been quite a blunt way to have encountered God. 
that he first identifies the thing about you that you are most insecure about, something that will have weighed on you, especially in a culture where children are so important and not being able to have them would be a real identity thing. But what God is doing is saying, I know you from the start. I know who you are. I know your story. And the promise that follows is what makes it powerful. Behold, you are barren and are not born children, but then behold, you will conceive and bear a son. God knows your story. He sees any brokenness or hurt or disappointment in your past. He knows all those weaknesses that you use to discount yourself from doing stuff for him. And yet he promises you stuff. And we can hold really closely to his promises. For us, that means the promise of salvation, a hope for the future, redemption and reconciliation with God, but also reconciliation with others. And God will redeem creation. So, we've seen the context. The Israelites have fallen away from God, done evil in the eyes of the Lord, done what was right in their own eyes, but it's not good enough. Samson's parents, uh, plain Jane, John Bloggs, Joe Bloggs, that's right, isn't that? They, uh, they are not particularly impressive people, but they have heard from God and they are going to be obedient. So that's what we'll look at next. Their obedience to this calling that they have heard, this promise that God's given them. We see here an image of, of feet pointing the opposite way to the arrows, suggesting someone's going the wrong way. I've already talked about this universal calling we have as Christians and some of the more specific callings on your life. Samson is the only judge who was chosen before he was born, which to me sounds like a risky approach. If I were picking someone to be uh, a Premier League footballer in 20 years, I don't think I'd just randomly choose someone before they were born. I'd wait and see if they were vaguely athletic and had some ability and were good at what they were doing, could apply themselves to training. But in this case, God is blessing Samson from in the womb before his birth all the way through his life. And God is at work through all of that. Samson's mum responds with faith and she acts. She has some stipulations that she needs to avoid wine and uh, grape-based things even before uh, the baby arrives. That's the Nazarite vow we'll get onto in a minute. To contrast that, when Sarah, Abraham's wife, hears that she is to have a child, she laughs in disbelief. Similar situation, she was barren and unable to have kids. She was old in her years. So you can understand a little bit, but her response is one of disbelief rather than great. There's no questioning from Samson's mum here. It's a shame she doesn't get named because she's a bit of a hero here, especially compared to Manoah, who has faith but doubts a little bit. So uh, Manoah's wife responds with faith, and they act on this promise. Jonah, as another contrast, hears God very clearly in terms of his instructions on his life. Jonah runs away from God's calling, and it's a, a tough challenge he's got to do, but anytime God calls you to something, he will be with you. He will provide for you. Manoah does have faith. He wants more details, though. He wants to drill down and get some more information. He wants to have the whole picture rather than what God has given him. What he wants is an Ikea step-by-step guide. Which piece goes into which other piece? And that's not what God is doing. God answers his prayer. The angel of the Lord comes again. That's God in, in uh, uh, Jesus in human form in the Old Testament. Um, so the angel of the Lord comes again, but doesn't explain any more, just affirms what has already been said, that you will be blessed with a child who will begin to save Israel from, Israel from the Philistines. And Manoah keeps trying to pin down the angel of the Lord, says, come back to my place, I'll whack the barbecue on, we can have some lamb, and then tries to twist his arm to get more information out of him. But that's not what is happening. Instead, God is asking them to be obedient to his calling, even if they don't know the whole picture. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, 
but the Lord establishes his steps. And that's the case here for Manoah. It's the case for us. That uh, it's, it's often quite clear where we're meant to be going, but we won't be able to see that far ahead of us. It's the same for everyone in life. But as a Christian, you know that God will provide and make clear a path for you. I'm convinced that comfort and control are two of the biggest acceptable idols in our culture and that people do whatever they can to make their lives comfortable, convenient, and to avoid any sort of discomfort or inconvenience. Uh, As a Christian, I don't think we have that option. There are so many blessings that God gives us and we're not called to lives, uh, lives that are unpleasant. But there is a sense of obeying him even if we don't know quite what we're going to be stepping into. What's interesting, they don't initially realize that it is the angel of the Lord. Uh, they, they find that out when the angel of the Lord disappears with the offering. And Manoah is terrified when he realizes that they have seen God face to face. Again, understandable and I think a right response. But his wife, Samson's mum, wisely points out that God obviously has no desire to harm them. He is choosing to bless them and has given them a promise. And that's really important here because... What we're seeing is that the person giving the promise, the promise keeper as well, that's far more important, knowing God rather than knowing every step that is to come. Knowing the character and the the integrity behind this promise, much, much more important. Within relational mission, our family of churches, we sometimes use a phrase where we say, a compass, not a map. That's helpful because we have a very clear bearing and direction of travel as Christians. We know where we're going, we know our end destination, and we know the general uh, bearings that we have to follow. But we don't know exactly which roads we will take. We don't know which destinations we will go to on the way. We don't know where the, the, the snack break stops will be on the journey, or what the music might be like in the car. But we do have that clear compass direction from God. Why don't we get all the details? can't say for certain. The Romans 2 verse 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And obviously in part that's talking about being countercultural, being able to stand out for God. But it's also in part not only being willing to live life as a Christian if you have a clear set of rules, a tick box exercise. Instead it's letting your entire life be renewed and reorientated by encountering God, knowing and understanding who he is. So that's Samson's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Average, but their obedience, they're listening to God. Next, we've got another image, three images actually, that will clarify what is a Nazarite. Because we threw it around a couple of times as I read through the passage. But what is a Nazarite? What does it mean? It comes from number six. Nothing to do from uh, anyone coming from Nazareth, unrelated to Nazareth. Instead, it was a vow that people undertook, normally for a limited period of time, often around 30 days, we believe. And the reason they did it was to commit themselves to God, to set, apart, set themselves apart for God, to uh, commit themselves to holiness, to seek his blessing and goodness in their lives and answers to prayer. There were three stipulations as a part of a Nazarite vow. The first one was not consuming any wine, strong drink, grape-based stuff. The second part was allowing your hair to grow out nice and long like that, that bird. And the third part, that's a dead body on the right, no uh, associating with dead bodies. We're told in numbers that even means if a close relative dies, you can't attend their funeral. So maybe a weightier thing than you might think if you don't often encounter dead bodies. But all of this was with the objective of being set apart and holy for God. We'll see next week that Samson doesn't necessarily do a great job of all of these. He's an imperfect guy, even with all his blessing. 
But it's not the acts themselves that bring about God's blessing. It's that idea of being totally willing to be set apart, committed to God, and seeking him. We won't go into this in too much depth now, but again, one to think about throughout the week, one to discuss at life groups. What does it mean for us as Christians now to be willing to be set apart? How should our lives look different? How should we behave? How do we seek God, even though our holiness is already secured through Jesus rather than through what we do? So that's the Nazarite. Finally, we're going to see Samson. Samson is arriving soon. He arrives in the last couple of verses, and uh, he grew, and the Lord blessed him. His parents named him Samson, or son of the sun, which is a little bit pagan. So even though they've encountered God, have seen his blessing, there's still a little bit of uh, imperfection in these people. But God uses imperfect people for the benefit of his imperfect people. He raises up the weak and makes them strong. The young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. What I find intriguing here is that it's still a process. This is someone who has been blessed by God since the womb, since before birth, and has been set apart for the whole of his life. Nazarite vows are said normally quite short. Samson is being called to be a Nazarite for the whole of his life. And yet, there is still a process that God is using to build up this man. As he's growing physically, learning to walk and talk and probably do some weights because he's a strong guy. At the same time, he is being blessed. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Even someone born miraculously to a couple who couldn't have kids, someone where God has brought about wondrous things, still requires a period of growth and blessing. In Luke 2, we read about Jesus growing in character and in standing among God and men. What has God begun in you? We've got a picture here of an acorn on the left, a big old oak tree on the right. Inevitably, there is a huge amount of time between one leading to the other. It takes time to build up that strength, that maturity, that wisdom, that character, And we as Christians are called to be oaks of righteousness. We're called to that as something to continually be growing. Um, Philippians uh, chapter 1 verse 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What good works has he begun in your life? What stuff is there that you've been trying to see uh, grow for years and years and you're still waiting for more? It's a gradual thing. Trees don't just pop up overnight to be that big. We'll hear next week about how God uses Samson, but it feels like he has the best possible start you could ask for, for a judge, right? He's been uh, blessed from before birth. He was a miraculous baby that God has brought about. He's someone that God is blessing all throughout his growing life, and surely he is going to be used mightily. And yet, we only see incomplete salvation. It's not full salvation. How frustrating is that that the best of, of mankind still fall short. I've got other pictures that I think explain this a little bit more. Mika said the, the golf ball one, it just looks too irritating to watch a golf ball that close to the hole. But this, I think, is, is handy. On the left, I'm suggesting this is the judges. These are people that God has raised up, but Israel has fallen away again and again. The judges are imperfect. Sometimes they try and cement their power and authority and influence. Sometimes they just turn away from God totally. They've got a little wooden gun that's never going to do the job and hit that target. On the right-hand side, eventually Israel gets kings, and some of them do a pretty good job. They are mighty men that God uses. Uh, King David, a man after God's heart, still is unable to save himself from sin, let alone other people. This on the right-hand side, um, I was told this is a javelin, which the, the 
British Army use as an anti-tank gun. It's a pretty impressive tracking missile thing. Even the kings miss the mark. They get things wrong over and over. We read that Samson shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines, but he doesn't, ultimately. Sorry for spoilers. He doesn't, he doesn't quite do everything right. And there's this promise to Eve that God gives in Genesis. He promises that there will be a child who comes through her line eventually that will be a saviour to God's people and undo the effects of sin. We haven't seen that saviour here. What we have seen, the judges, the kings, all these imperfect people, the Israelites themselves, it all points towards Jesus as the one and ultimate perfect saviour. Where Al was talking us through, um, hallelujah, what a saviour. There is no one like Jesus. That's what all of this points to, the imperfection of God's people, his faith to them again and again, the judges and the kings being unable to do what is needed, points towards Jesus. So we're going to summarize. We're getting to the end. I just want to recap what we've said. God is faithful even when his people are not, again and again and again. Seven times we've seen in Judges that the people do not do what is right in the eyes of God. But God is faithful and he starts to raise up this judge, Samson, he blesses people who are ordinary and unimpressive, Mr. and Mrs. Average. He brings about something wonderful and miraculous in giving them a child, something they would not be able to do uh, themselves. So are you ordinary and unimpressive? I hope some of you are, because that is the kind of person that God uses. He raises up the weak and makes them strong. Recognize God's grace in your life. See where he has blessed you. See the opportunities he has given you recap your story and see where he has uh, pointed you towards certain things, any particular callings on your life, as well as the general calling for us as Christians. And grow, constantly be growing. Recognize that it's a slow process sometimes. Even when you are blessed by God, even when he has set you apart, there is gradual incremental growth. So whilst you're growing in practical life things, learning to walk and talk as a child, learning to read and speak and teach and become an accountant or anything like that, any skills you are learning, be growing in God's too. Seek his blessing. Be willing to step out and let him do what he wants to do through you. And lastly, recognize that nothing can save you except Jesus. Jesus is our savior. There is nothing else that can replace him, nothing else that can take his spot. We saw the examples of the best of the judges. We saw the example, well, we know of examples of the kings. They fall short. Jesus does not. We're going to worship again now, and we're going to sing some songs, if the band would like to come back, if someone can beckon them. We're going to sing some songs that just talk about what that means. Talk about uh, how Jesus is the one and only Savior. Did what only he could do when God came to earth uh, as, as Jesus Christ, born as a baby, another example of miraculous baby-making. He lived, he lived a perfect life. He wasn't flawed. He wasn't like the judges and the kings. He went to the cross at our expe- in our place, having done nothing wrong. And he was able to take the weight of all our wrongdoings and bring about salvation that only he could do. So we're going to sing. I'm going to pray for us. Can I invite you to stand now? We're not going to sing. These guys will sing. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you that all throughout Scripture we see everything pointing to you. We love these examples of where you have used ordinary people, 
frail and imperfect, and you have made them strong, we, we seek you. We want to grow in you. We want to become more like you, and we want you to use us for your glory to bring about good things. When we think about our nation, our neighborhoods, our friends, we want people to live lives that are full of blessing and comfort and peace, but comfort in you rather than comfort in anything else. We thank you, Lord, that we can so solidly cling to the promises that you have made and fulfilled. We know your character. We know that you are God. We know that you are good. And knowing you as the promise giver and keeper gives us so much certainty and security. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, and we worship you. Amen.